you would, turn with me in your Bibles or on your device to Ecclesiastes, uh, Ecclesiastes 7. And this morning we're going to be in three different chapters of Ecclesiastes. So chapter 7, a portion of chapter 9, and chapter 10 as well. So 7, 9, and 10. Uh, I'm going to read each portion of uh, the Scriptures as we deal with it, as we work through this message today. Uh, So let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together in His Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word and for this time in which you have appointed for us to hear its reading and its preaching. And Lord, we do ask um, the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, for you are the Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we look to you now for wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So far in Ecclesiastes, we have heard the main speaker, uh, the one that we know as the preacher, give a a human and horizontal account of of life here, where? Under the sun. And that phrase, under the sun, is meant to communicate uh, that if we consider only what our senses can apprehend, so only what we can see with our eyes and hear with our ears and smell with our noses and taste with our mouths and touch uh, with our hands, if we only consider what our senses can apprehend, then this, what we see in front of us, what is described over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes, is what life is like. The preacher's summary judgment is that under the sun, life is hevel. That it's this Hebrew word that that means vapor or smoke. It's translated in our Bibles, vanity, or perhaps meaningless. This word appears 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it means that like a, a vapor, life in this world is fleeting. That it is finite. And that meaning in the things that happen in our lives is difficult to find. It's difficult to grasp. It's elusive like smoke. And so the preacher shares a part of his personal story, how he went on a a quest to to find meaning in life, uh, to find out, we're going to hear the phrase in our passages today, the scheme of things. And he did this uh, by uh, seeking out meaning in all these different things in wisdom and in pleasure and in work, and he learned a lot. These things taught him a lot. These experiences informed him, but they failed to provide meaning to life. It failed to give him the scheme of things. And the preacher concludes that even though under the sun, impermanence and injustice and individualism reign, even though under the sun, death is absolutely certain, even though God has put eternity in our hearts, but has done so in such a way that we cannot figure things out, that we can't see what he has done from beginning to end, that we should still recognize the goodness of God in giving us life. And to see the opportunity that life presents and that we should intentionally pursue the enjoyment of our lives. Brothers and sisters, I think that so many times life in Christ is presented as anti-fun. That, that we are to be somber and serious and that, that we are to, 
um, live lives that are largely devoid of joy because we're always trying to only do what is right and tell other people to do what is right. But the word of God gives us permission, more than that, commands us that we are to pursue the intentional enjoyment of our lives, not as a end in itself, but as a means to the end of enjoying the God who made us and everything else. The preacher does not pretend that this approach of intentional enjoyment is going to make our lives easier or that it's going to take away our trials and troubles. But he teaches us that we can find God-glorifying enjoyment in all circumstances. That we can find God-glorifying enjoyment regardless of what it is that we're going through. But that is tricky, and so we're going to need help. And that's what we find in the verses that we're going to look at today. What the Holy Spirit through the preacher is telling us in these three chapters is that in order to to navigate and to enjoy life under the sun, we need wisdom. To navigate and to enjoy life under the sun, we need wisdom. And the preacher establishes his search for wisdom in Ecclesiastes 7, verses 23 through 29. So look at that with me. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes." The preacher goes after wisdom to find out the scheme of things, to find out by wisdom the meaning of life. He says his soul sought it out repeatedly, but he could not find it. He sought out wisdom and through wisdom to understand the scheme of things repeatedly, but he could not find it. This reaffirms what we said a couple of weeks ago. We want the world to fit into a neat, coherent, explainable system that makes sense to us. We want to be able to fit the world into a comprehensible system because that is a world in which we can maintain the illusion of control. And the preacher failed to figure out the scheme of things. But what he did learn is that to navigate and to enjoy life under the sun, we need wisdom. But even as he was apprehending wisdom, he encountered a problem. And the problem is because of our sinful nature, we are not inclined naturally to wisdom. We're inclined naturally to foolishness and to sin, what the preacher calls folly. And the preacher knows this from his own experience where he can't find, he can only find one man and he can't find any women who have wisdom 
And so in these passages, he uses a tool, the tool of a proverb to show us the way of wisdom. You may remember from our series in Proverbs, we spent two summers a couple of years ago going through uh, the book of Proverbs. But a proverb is a short statement that communicates practical knowledge for living well. In the Bible, a proverb is God's wisdom for everyday life. It's taking God's wisdom and applying it to everyday life. To navigate and to enjoy life under the sun, we need wisdom. And the the preacher shows us five major areas, at least five major areas in which we are going to need wisdom. First, we need wisdom in our perspective. We need wisdom in our perspective, the way that we see and approach life. We see this in uh, Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 through 14, and then 9, verses 11 and 12. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money and has the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. To navigate and to enjoy life, we need wisdom in our perspective. 9, 11, and 12. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. What is a a wise way to see and to approach life? The preacher says to live with the end in mind, to live with the end of our lives constantly in our minds. We saw on Valentine's Day how the the certainty of death leads us to see the opportunity of life, which can then free us for intentional enjoyment of life. You're probably familiar with the Latin phrase, carpe diem. What does it mean? Seize the day. Thank you, Dead Poet Society. Carpe diem. But there's another Latin phrase that Christians have used since the early centuries of the church. Memento mori. Memento mori means remember 
that you will die. That's why it's so good for a church to have a cemetery so that we regularly memento mori. The preacher brings these two concepts together, carpe diem and memento mori. It is remembering that this life is impermanent, that it is finite and fleeting that will lead us to seize every moment that we can, to have life and have it to the full. Because we memento mori, we can carpe diem. The things that matter while you live, the preacher says, can't be bought. A good name is better than expensive stuff. The day of death, the house of mourning, sorrow, the end of a thing, the preacher says that these are better than the day of birth, the house of feasting, laughter and frivolity, and the beginning of a thing. This is counterintuitive to us. We prefer the first list to the second. We rejoice in a birth or the beginning of a thing. We mourn at a death and the end of a thing. And that's right. But apart from the perspective that we gain from facing the difficult realities of life, our feasting and our laughing and our enjoying, which the preacher tells us to do, will only be vanity, vanity, and a striving after wind. Apart from the perspective that we gain from considering the difficult realities of life, our feasting and laughing and enjoying will be vanity, vanity, a striving after wind. I can think of another place. In Scripture, a wise teacher confronts us with counterintuitive truth. Jesus goes up on the mountain with his disciples before him and the crowds behind them. And he begins to teach. And he says... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. See, Jesus has a different perspective from the world because Jesus has the perspective of divine wisdom. The world holds high self-esteem and self-actualization to be the highest good. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have an accurate perception of themselves and their need for Christ. The world says, be happy, whatever it takes. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. You could translate this as happy are the sad. Blessed are those who grieve over their own brokenness and over the brokenness that they see in the world. It is wise to rightly estimate the world that we live in. The world says you need to be assertive and dominant. You need to look out for number one. And Jesus, in contrast, says blessed are the meek who approach others with humility and grace, not looking to their own interests, but also to the interests of others and counting others more significant than themselves. The way of wisdom is the way of God's kingdom, and it is counterintuitive. It's a different way of seeing. A book that really helps me regularly in my prayer life is called The Valley of Vision. It's a book of Puritan prayers, and one of my favorite prayers in The Valley of Vision says this, Lord, teach me. The way, up is the, uh, the way down is the way up. 
To be low is to be high. The broken heart is the healed heart. The contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. The repenting soul is the victorious soul. To have nothing is to possess all. To bear the cross is to wear the crown. To give is to receive. The valley is the place of vision. Let me find thy light in my darkness. Thy life in my death. Thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Well, that's different. What a dangerous prayer. But what a gloriously wise prayer. And it comes from a different way of seeing. It comes from a transformed perspective. And what wisdom does, godly wisdom does, is it frees us, according to the preacher, to receive wise rebuke and reject foolish vanity. To reject material gain if it means participating in evil. To embrace patience rather than pride. And anger, to be slow to anger, to not live in the nostalgic past, but for the day that God has given to you, to remember that the Lord is in control and we cannot manipulate his plans. It doesn't matter if we have speed or wisdom or intelligence or knowledge. Only God knows what we don't and can't know. The preacher says that this wise perspective is good then it's an advantage, an inheritance that protects the one who has it. Why? Because wisdom leads us to consider the work of God in our lives. So when we are blessed with prosperity, we can keep it in its right place and its right priority, and we are able to rejoice, to enjoy it to the glory of God. But when we face adversity... We are able to receive it from God's hand just as we have prosperity and steward it for his glory and still find God glorifying enjoyment in the midst of adversity. We need wisdom in our perspective to navigate and to enjoy life. We also see that second, we need wisdom in our character. We need wisdom in our perspective and we need wisdom in our character. We see that in chapter 7 verses 15 through 20. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise, to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely, surely, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. In the Old Testament book of Job, uh, there is a, a man of great character who is the main character. His name is... Job, yeah. And, uh, and Job uh, really has some significant adversity in his life. He loses everything that he has. He loses um, his livestock, and he loses his employees, he loses his children, and then he loses his health. And as he is sitting there in just abject misery, uh, three of his friends show up. 
And if you're reading the narrative, you're like, good, finally, his friends are going to bring him some comfort. And they at first respond rightly. What they do is they sit down with Job, and they're just quiet for a long time. Isn't that good? Isn't that, doesn't it remind us that so many times what we're going through, um, difficulty in our lives, that we don't necessarily need people's words as much as we need their presence. But then Job's friends begin to open their mouths. And then it's chapter after chapter after chapter of, what did you do wrong to deserve this, Job? And Job hadn't done anything wrong. But because his friends do not have a wise character or a wise perspective, they assume the principle of proportional compensation, which goes like this. It all comes back to you. You finally get what you deserve. Try and test that. You're bound to get served. It's, for lack of a better word, karma. They conclude that Job's sufferings are because of a deficiency in his character. And often we think this way too. When good things happen to us, we assume that we deserve it. When bad things happen to other people, sometimes we assume that they deserve it. But when bad things happen to us, we say, why me? What the preacher says is, y'all are crazy. I have seen the righteous man die young, and the wicked man live a long time doing evil all the way. This is a mystery to us, and we cannot see God's purposes in the crazy things that happen in this world. So often, what we do is we respond in one of two ways. The first is we try to game the system and be so good that God will be obligated to bless us. We try to, to obey to the point that God will have to look at our obedience and bless us because of it. Is that wise? No. The other way is we give up trying to be good altogether because what's the point? Every time I try, I fail. That's everyone in this room. We are prone to one of those or the other. Sometimes we might go back and forth, but we're either prone to try so hard to be good that God will bless us, or we give up being good altogether because what's the point? And the preacher teaches us here that neither of these approaches will change anything. And they both will have bad effects on our character. When we try to be super righteous so that we obligate God, we actually become not super righteous, but self-righteous. And we begin to despise God if the blessings that we think we earned do not come. When we turn to wickedness, then God gives us over to evil and to foolishness and to the temporal consequences that come. The key to wisdom of character, the preacher says, is fear of the Lord. Remembering in chapter 7, verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. This is the first part of the gospel. There is no one righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This first part of the gospel kills our attempts at super-righteousness and its self-righteous results. There's another part to the gospel, amen? The second part of the gospel 
is that the Lord himself has become our righteousness. The Lord himself has become the righteousness that we could not achieve for ourselves. And how has he done so? By God the Father sending God the Son to live life in this world as one of us, fully human, while remaining fully God and satisfying the righteous requirement of God's law in his righteous life so that his righteous record could become ours. And this Jesus went to the cross. And on the cross, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He endured the justice of God against our sin. He endured the penalty that we deserved for our sin. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead, vindicating his righteous life and his perfect death for his people and securing for us eternal life and the very wisdom of God for life in this world. And the good news of the gospel frees us from the self-destruction of wickedness. Galatians 6, verses 5-7. through 7, For if we have been united to Christ in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Brothers and sisters, we are free from self-righteousness because we know that we can never achieve the righteousness that God requires and because Jesus has done it for us. We are also free from sin and the power of sin in our lives because of what Jesus has done for us, applied by the Holy Spirit to us. Have you been set free from self-righteousness and from sin by Jesus Christ? That's a real question. Have you been set free from self-righteousness and from sin by the Lord Jesus Christ? Then you are able, by God's grace, to navigate and to enjoy life through wisdom in your character, perspective, and character. And thirdly, we turn from the internal perspective and character to the external, and we see that we need wisdom in our lifestyle. We need wisdom in our lifestyle. And the preacher gives us some principles for wisdom, principles of wisdom for life, and they all come from chapter 9 and chapter 10. So first, Wisdom is better than power and influence. Verses 13 through 18 of chapter 9. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. Wisdom is better than power and influence. Brothers and sisters, do we believe this? Because what happened when Jesus rode into Jerusalem 
All of the people gathered in the streets and threw down their coats and they waved palm branches saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And why were they so excited? Because God had finally sent his Messiah, an earthly ruler with a sword in his fist who was going to deliver them from the earthly oppression of the Romans. Power and might and influence would be theirs. And yet, not even a week later, Jesus has been condemned by his own people and he's standing before Pilate and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my disciples would have been fighting. Brothers and sisters, we do not follow a king who right now has earthly power and influence. We have a king who in silence, in perceived weakness went to a cross to lay down his life for his people and his wisdom is better than power the wisdom of god appears to be foolishness to the world wisdom is better than foolishness we see that in chapter 10 verses 1 through 7 dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. By the way, that's not a comment on politics. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Foolishness is what we are prone to. And it leads to destruction. Wisdom is better than foolishness. Wisdom is better when it is present in our rulers. Look at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 10. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Basically, what he's saying is that things go better for a people when their king is not a child, whether that is physically or emotionally a child, when he is a mature person and not an immature person, and when the rulers of a land feast rightly for strength and not for drunkenness, for wisdom and not for foolishness. Do we pray for wisdom in our rulers? Wisdom is better than laziness. 1018 through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks and the preacher just tells us that wisdom makes everything better 19 and 20 bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything even in your thoughts do not curse the king nor in your bedroom curse the rich for a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature will tell the matter Wisdom in our lifestyle makes everything better. It equips us to enjoy and to navigate the life that God has given to us. 
And so now the preacher turns and gives us two more kind of subsets of our lifestyle in which it is important to have wisdom. We need it in our internal, we need it in perspective, and we need it in character. We need it in our lifestyle, and we need wisdom in our work. We need wisdom in our work. Chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Work is good. We find work in the scriptures before our fall into sin and curse and brokenness. God creates Adam and Eve in His image, and He gives them responsibility. He tells them to subdue the earth and to have dominion over it. Basically, He gives them all this beautiful raw material in the Garden of Eden, and He tells them to cultivate and to fill the earth and to subdue it. He gives Adam and Eve work to do before the fall. Work is good. But nobody says amen. Why? Because the fall inverted the goodness of work. And so now, work is difficult. And work can be dangerous. And work is frustrating. (laughs) It's even part of the curse where the Lord tells Adam, you will work the ground to eat your bread. It's by the sweat of your brow, and it will produce for you thorns and thistles. Any of us had the, the experience of thorns and thistles in our work? And here, he uses, obviously, the examples of manual labor, but this applies across the board to any type of work. It has pitfalls. Work has dangers. Some of the most common dangers that we have in our work is to let our work become our life. That's not wise. Uh, To not be aware of the sinfulness, not only of ourselves, but also the people that we work with, that's not wise. To make work an idol and doing anything in your power, even if it's sinful, to get ahead in work, that is not wise. Recognizing that even if you do everything right in your work life, that calamity and adversity can show up. That is wise. Work is good, and redeemed people are called to good work. God has given us vocations in which to use our personalities and the gifts that he has given us, our talents, to develop them to his glory that we might enjoy him. And what the preacher says is that wisdom helps one to succeed. But let's be careful about the definition of success. Success in work is not the promotion. Success in work is not the salary Success in work is not the benefits and the retirement and the reputation. Success in work is enjoying the vocation that God made you for to his glory all the days of your life. We need wisdom in our perspective, in our character, in our lifestyle, in our work. And lastly, we need wisdom in our speech. We need wisdom in our speech, 10 at 12 through 15. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, but the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool 
multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. And then ending where we began in chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Brothers and sisters, we have a testimony not only here in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament about the power of our words and how dangerous they can be if they do not have wisdom applied. James 3, 3 through 12, James, the brother of Jesus, says this, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot desires. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such fire, such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining our whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, We bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Out of the overflow of the mouth, uh, overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Wise people, wise people do not give themselves to gossip. Wise people do not give themselves to gossip, not even in the form of a prayer request. Wise people do not curse others. Wise people do not give themselves to the bearing of false witness against others. Wise people recognize the weight of our words. And I would remind us of just a, a couple of weeks ago, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2. God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. If we're going to navigate this life, If we're going to enjoy life to God's glory under the sun, we need His wisdom. So brothers and sisters, the wisest thing that I can say to you today is please give yourself to the wisdom of God as it is found on the pages of His Scripture. Listen, Jesus Christ is the very wisdom of God. He is the all-surpassing treasure. And every page, every chapter, every word of this book testifies to Him. And the Holy Spirit that he has poured out into your hearts to testify to your spirit that you are a child of God by whom you cry, Abba, Father, will illuminate the wisdom of his word for your life. Thanks be to God. 
Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for access to wisdom. We do not deserve it, Lord. Uh, We are born foolish, and we are conceived in foolishness and in sin. And we are so prone to it, Lord, in, in every area, in our perspective on life, in our character, in the way that we live, in our lifestyle, in our work, in our words, in so many other ways, Lord, we are prone to foolishness. Thank you that you have given us access to wisdom. Rather, thank you for giving us wisdom in the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, conform our life to his. Conform our perspective to his. Conform our character to his as you have revealed him in your word. Lord, we do love you. And pray that out of our relationship with you, the all-wise and the only wise God, that we ourselves would become wise, not for our sake, Lord, though in being wise there is great temporal reward, but for your name's sake, Lord, that we would glorify and enjoy you forever. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.